What's up all you oysters, clams, and cockles? It's time again to get our grub on with our next meet and eat on June 25th. If you're in the Columbus area or just want to come visit Columbus and hang out, this is the time to do it. Keep up to date by searching and joining Meet and Eat by Oyster World on meetup.com or liking our Oyster World Facebook page. This may be my last one, so sad for now at least, before I get shipped across the pond. So don't miss out. Keep your Sunday brunch spot open and I will see you there. Welcome to Oyster World. Radio. Hello, all you oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, where it's my job to reach out of my everyday bubble and gain a new perspective of the world from the people that inhabit it. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and in this episode, we talk to a fellow Buckeye and Cincinnatiite, Abdul Al-Rahman Trubosi. You picked a good episode of Two and Two because his story got me as motivated as the final scenes of Wonder Woman. The Syrian conflict has been a large part of Abdul Rahman's life. Syria is where he spent most of his summer vacations, just like my yearly visits to my family in San Diego. Most of his family lived there, friends too, and too many childhood memories to count conflict changed everything. But what surprised me the most was his mindset after his time volunteering in northern Syria. It's a message that we could all use in this day and age. Amidst all the chaos, carnage, and anxiety, his gratefulness and take on responsibility are the messages that I'll hold on to. All it's right. actually Ramadan right now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So you're, you're fasting too. Yeah, I am fasting. Oh, man. I, I can't imagine... I try to do fasting every now and then. I think I try to do um, one day yeah. with, with Omar, yeah. and I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I was. I think it's just you have to. Get, your body has to get used to it. I think so too. Like I mean, it's hard the first time. You usually get a headache by the end of the by the by the end of the day, the mm-hmm. first day. But then your body just gets used to it over time. I don't even think about it nowadays. Oh really? Yeah. Like I, no food or water, as you know, but from sunrise to sunset. And sometimes, sometimes I don't wake up in the morning. I just have my meal from the night before. That's all I've had. And I make it through the whole day. It's amazing what the body can do and yeah. what we think it can't do. Because yeah. I grew up on three meals a day, so if I miss breakfast, I'm down for the count. It's really, it's a lot of mental. I'm sure it is. Yeah. I'm sure it is. And I'm not mentally strong enough yet. And I should probably you, It's do also this. interesting when you, when you fast and you don't eat that long, when you're not eating how much time you have to think about other things. Like, we think about food so much. It's really ridiculous. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. And we usually don't. I mean, think of our ancestors back in the caveman days. I mean, they, <laughs> they, couldn't, get, they couldn't walk down to Panera and grab a salad. Yeah. So they probably, <laughs> not like us. No. But then the, with Ramadan, it's much more than just the food and water. Right? Like, if you're, if you're able to withdraw from a, a very basic blessing that you're, you have, like something that you take for granted every day or something that you think is necessary, mm-hmm. right, which is food and water. And if you can stay away from that for a whole day, for 30 days, that means you can stay away from other things in your life. So it's really meant to be a time where you like reflect on your spirituality, reflect on your character, your morals, like how you can improve as a person. So try to undo bad habits and develop good habits. Because if you can stay food and water, you can stay away from lying or you can stay away from cussing or you can stay away from other things that you might not want to do in your life. So oh, that's, that's part amazing. of it is like 
building a stronger relationship with God and improving yourself as a person. Oh, I love that concept a lot. I never heard it explained that way. Yeah. Uh, either I don't I don't know much about the holiday, but uh, very poetic in a way, and it makes complete sense. I'm trying to get away from my phone right now because yeah. I am so tired of being addicted to my yeah. phone. So maybe I'll I'll jump in a little bit and try <laughs> to try to do the phone thing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, once again, welcome to the show. Welcome to Oyster World Radio. We're very excited to have you. you on. Someone across your story in an article in the OSU newspaper, and you're up to a lot of things, a lot of things, but we'll get, we'll get to that later. Um, and the first, first thing I kind of want to go over, because I don't want to say it the first time, because I know I'm going to butcher it so much. What is your full name? So and my name is Abdul Rahman Trubosi. Abdul Rahman Trubosi. Yeah. And, and it's um, what you were telling me before we started hitting recording. This is beautiful meaning. Yeah, so uh, Abdul Rahman means servant of the most merciful in Arabic. And in Islam, God has 99 attributes. And one of those being Ar-Rahman, which is the most merciful. Uh, and you, you see this name occur in other places where people say in, in Islam, where it's like servant of and one of the attributes of God. So like Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Mm-hmm. Abdul Jabbar is the same structure as Abdul Rahman. It's just a different attribute of God. Well, well that is, um, I wish that names in America had such more meaning because it goes along with your story as well. Uh, and, I try. Well, I like to, I like to think yeah. so. Um, you're definitely doing a lot more for a problem in the world that really needs to be addressed. But more into that later, we're going to start all the way back in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you're a Cincinnatiite, like me, too. Yeah, so I was, I was born in Lexington, Kentucky. You were born in Lexington, okay. And then I moved to Westchester. I, I stayed in Lexington for three years, moved to Westchester for a year, moved to Kuwait, moved to Missouri, and then came back to Westchester, which Cincinnati area, um, second grade. And I've been in Cincinnati since second grade. Oh, man, so you've been all over the place even before going to Cincinnati. When I was little, but all I really remember is Cincinnati. I gotcha. Yeah. Well... I mean, Cincinnati turning into a great place, wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Is that where you're at right now, too, when you're out of school? Uh, yeah, so I'm currently in Cincinnati. That's where my parents both live, in Westchester, which was one of the suburbs in Cincinnati. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I was actually at Bellevue Park. It's in okay. Clifton area, we're next to the University of Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks over the downtown. Oh. I, don't, I don't know if you've been there before. I don't. I haven't in a long time. If I, it's have. really beautiful to see the whole city, and then you can see like Kentucky on the other side and the lake winding behind the city. Oh, I'm definitely gonna go check that out. The, yeah. the Cincinnati skyline, it's just one of those hometown things that mm-hmm. really sticks out in your mind. Speaking of skyline, I I have to say it. I have to say it. Are you a skyline or Gold Star fan? I am neither. You're neither. No. Oh my I goodness. actually don't understand the obsession with Skyline. It's it I've been trying to explain it to all my friends that also don't get it and I realized how weird it was <laughs> once I left Cincinnati. And I don't know. I don't I think part of it is you. also like my mom used to cook home homemade food every night and like Middle Eastern food oh. is very delicious, very savory. I had my grandma cooking for us. And then you go to Skyline, it's like spaghetti with chili on It is top. not homemade And I'm just meals. like, well, this is not as delightful <laughs> as my home food at home. So that's probably part of it, is that I'm just used to my mom's cooking and that Skyline is, is not Definitely comparable. 100% what it is. I would yeah. probably pick your mom's cooking over Skyline any day <laughs> as well. But another just soft spot in my heart. 
Man, I'm, I'm running into more and more people that don't like Skyline. It's really, it's really hurting it's my soul. What happens when you explore outside of Cincinnati? <laughs> yeah. We leave our little yes. bubble. <laughs> yes, we, we definitely leave our little bubble. So you grew up in kind of the same situation I did, but what was a day in the life uh, in, the child, in your childhood? So what would you like to do? Would you? Uh, I would say, you know, as a, as a middle schooler, um, I used to read a lot. So, like, mm-hmm. I used to love reading. I was that kid that would come back from the library with, like, a stack of books in his hands where he couldn't see above him. And just every week, just, like, a book a day, 300, 400 pages every day. I was just, I just loved reading. 300, 400 pages a day. And my parents to the point where, it would be to the point where, like, my dad would want me to stop reading at night. That, like, he'd have to come check up on me at night to make sure I was actually going to bed. Because otherwise, sometimes when I heard the steps coming upstairs, I'd, like, hide the book. You hide the book or, and like, go the to lamp, sleep. Or, like, the light, the book light, I'd just cover it. Um, it just got to the point where he's like, you're reading way too much. Like, this is great for you. Like, I, I love it that you're not wasting your time doing other things, but you have to sleep, too. You can't just stay up all night reading books before school. Yeah, it's all right. Let out that inner nerd. <laughs> As a fellow engineer, we got to have that inner nerd come out sometimes. Yeah. I totally get it. What's your favorite book? Um, what do you think? Of all of them you've read. Oh. So in fiction, I really love the Redwall series. I don't know if you've ever heard it, by Brian Jock. Uh, he's a French writer. Um, really, really, really good series. It's about, like, talking animals. Sounds really weird. But I'm I really enjoyed sure. it. You said Redwall? Redwall, okay. yeah. But my favorite nonfiction book is definitely the um, Malcolm X biography. Oh, I heard it was phenomenal. Um, it definitely. I read it in high school as a freshman. And his life and, like, his conviction for what he believed in, but his openness to changing his perspective when he was presented with new information is just very beautiful. Because he had such a strong conviction, but throughout his life he went through different phases Mm -hmm. because he wasn't arrogant and stubborn. And he was such an important civil rights leader in our society, and unfortunately he was assassinated like Malcolm X, I mean, like Martin Luther King. Um, And we just don't, I don't think we give his history and what he did for the civil rights movement at the time enough to just understand who he was. He was in prison, and he memorized the dictionary in prison. Like he learned the whole dictionary in prison. He didn't go to school. Uh, he didn't go to college. Yeah, he was the most one of the most articulate, articulate orators of his time. Wow. Um, so it was just when you put your mind to something, you can do it. And that's something I always like really appreciated. Yeah, and what a lesson to learn in freshman year of high school. You were yeah. definitely ahead of the game, yeah. for sure. And I was still like all the other kids. You know, I like to have fun. I like to play sports. Mm-hmm. I like to read. I like to do things with my friends. Yeah, and when, yeah. I, when I met you, too, I, I wasn't expecting you to be as tall as you are. Yeah. So were you a big basketball player like me? Yeah, I love playing basketball. I wish my parents introduced it to me earlier. They, that was the one sport they didn't introduce me to as a child. Oh, child. really? Oh, no. I was like, why didn't you introduce Why You took me to soccer, hockey, swimming, but never basketball. <laughs> they took you to hockey instead of basketball first? Hey, I don't know. Hey, you know. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've, I've ducked once in my life. Once or twice, but... Unfortunately, it's just not a common occurrence anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, it, once the legs start to tighten up, they're not yeah. as... <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever dunked, which is sad. I should, I should be able to dunk. I need yeah. to work on that. We just don't have hops. <sighs> yeah, you know what? I've been fighting that, <laughs> that theory for a long time, but I'm losing. Yeah. I'm losing every time I step on the court. But um, um, looking at the article, too, you spent a lot of time in Syria and mm-hmm. had a lot of family there as well. Yeah. Um, I visited my family in California all the time. Is that kind of what you did? Were you yeah. over there a lot? So I used to go there every summer ever since I was really young. So three, whenever summer break hits, three months, 
that I'd spend that time in Syria. Half that time I'd spend in, my, in, in Damascus, where my grandparents from my mom's side lived. And half that time I'd spend in Homs, which is another city in Syria, where my dad's side of the family lived. Mm-hmm. And that was my summer every year. So that was like vacation. And it really um, just built my roots there and is how I have such a good Arabic foundation because I can speak, read, and write. And although my parents taught me at home, I wouldn't have this foundation if I didn't go back to Syria every year and have to speak it for so long, for three months every year. Right. Yeah, so you, you were there all the time. And what was, uh, what was it like? Like, what, you go on vacation, you're visiting yeah. your family, and I know a lot of people and a lot of the audience probably have no idea yeah. what Syria was like before the war. Uh, I mean, it was home to me. It was like, you know, the na- just I, my grandparents lived in Damascus in an area where uh, you could walk and walk down the street and there's like the bakery or like there's the, the candy store or the grocery store. Um, and it was, it was a city environment, so, um, you know, not as like busy and crowded as New York, um, but still like a more urban setting. Mm-hmm. And it's where all my relatives were. You know, I'd cross the street and my uncle lived across the street or I'd go down a floor from the apartment and my cousins lived there. So it was like, it was just so much fun to go and hang out with my friends and family. Um, and I didn't really have that family connection back in the United States because all my family was in Syria. Mm-hmm. So I looked forward to going there every time. And a lot of people think of Syria like the Middle East as like desert yeah. and camels. Um, where we lived, there was no desert. There were no camels. You know, it's a little, they, they, it snowed in the winter. They got snow in the, this November, December, and January, just like we get snow here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lot more familiar to people than it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, than what like kind of the pictures you get of like the Gulf Coast, the Middle East is very different. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and definitely the um, I know I had to change some of those perspectives as well. The more I learn about it, because you get these ideas stuck in your head, like yeah. no, this is just another urban city, just like anything else. Yeah. What was your uh, What was your favorite restaurant in Syria? So there was this, uh, you know, shawarma. Yeah, I love shawarma. Yeah, yeah. so it's like this the Middle Eastern sandwich mm-hmm. um, burger. Um, and there was a shawarma shop that was probably like three blocks from my grandma's house in Homs. And like, it, was, it always opened like really late to like 3 or 4 a.m. Oh, those are the best. So like we'd be hanging out with my cousins, we'd be playing cards, drinking some tea, and then my older cousin would usually go and get shawarma from this place and come back. Oh, man, that and, sounds so great. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, the, the hardest part, and this is hard for me, and I can't imagine how hard it is for people who actually live, were born there and raised there like my dad and his siblings but to see all that go away mm-hmm. like you know Homs um, was in 2013 when it was surrounded by siege by the government it was bombarded for periods of time and about half the city is completely demolished it's like the shop the shawarma shop is destroyed my grandma's home is destroyed like everything that we all the memories I used to have the streets I used to play on and go and the parks they're gone there's nothing there anymore um, it's just rubble it's un- uninhabitable so I think that's been very difficult because all the good memories that I have, I just don't know when I'll ever be able to have those again, if ever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that, that's a good segue into um, the next part I really want to talk about is uh, the beginning of the war. Because it really, for me, I feel like it just happened. Mm-hmm. There's not, um, there wasn't a lot of news or as much news coverage as I would think in it it didn't really come into the public eye until it was almost a little too late. But obviously for you, that's a completely different story with yeah. your family being there. So what what was it like, especially for 
for myself and listening, I couldn't even possibly imagine mm -hmm. the city of Cincinnati being encircled and sieged, or even where my family I visit in California, yeah, where I have all these memories. So what, what especially like a young man coming into yeah. his own, what was going through your head at the time? You know, like we mentioned, what was life like when I was young? And I didn't really begin to develop this mature perspective in life until the conflict started. And it's really what has kind of shaped my life since then because it has been a source of pain, sadness, motivation, and all these other things combined. And it, the conflict started my sophomore year of college um, in 2011. And uh, what it started with was these children are writing on these walls down with Bashar, which is the dictator of Syria, down with this kingdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government kidnapped these children, and they sent one of the children's back in a body bag to their, his family. Um, and it started this huge outcry. It was the time of the Arab Spring, so Egypt and Tunisia and the countries surrounding the Middle East were beginning to kind of also have their own tumultuous problems. And the people in that southern, southern city of Idlib kind of began to protest. And protests turned into organized protests, and then the government started shooting protesters, and the protests picked up arms, and then it became more of a conflict where the rebels were, the civilians were fighting the government to get their rights back. Mm -hmm. And to give you perspective on like why this was, why the people felt like they had been repressed for so long, you know, the Syrian regime has been ruling with an iron fist for about 40 years now. And in the 80s, there was a revolution. Um, it was partially led by the Muslim Brotherhood at the time. Um, what the Syrian government did is they seized the city of Hama, which is in northern Syria. And for three weeks, they bombarded the city. And within those three weeks, they killed 40,000 people. 40,000 is a big number. And my dad lived in Homs, which was, you know, two, three hours away, four hours away. And they had seen tanks going that way and military personnel going up to the city. But because there was no internet back then, they didn't know what happened until weeks later. Like, wow. what was going on. So they controlled things so well. Like, there was absolute silence. Nothing came out of Hama for those three weeks. That's incredible. Um, you know, nowadays, something happens, the very next moment, everyone around the world knows about it. Mm -hmm. But they had done so well to repress people's voices. Like, when I went to Syria and I saw something, I'd make fun of the dictator. My cousins would get scared because they're afraid that the people around us would report us. And then the next thing you know, someone might disappear in our family and we never know where he went. And so, that's so terrifying. That's why people revolted against the government. Um, it's those things that, like, that repression, that absolute repression where people are living in peace as long as you don't say anything. Yeah. Once you step out of your way, you're gone. They, yeah. they silence you right away. Yeah, and I, especially in the, the world that we live in in the United States, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. We, that's something that we all kind of take for granted. Um, and something I say, maybe my sister disappears, that would be... I mean, of course, like, what other choices do you have? Mm -hmm. um, and 40,000 people, that's almost the size of Ohio State. Yeah, exactly. Imagine, like, when one week. Put in perspective. In three weeks, that's just all gone. That's incredible. So here you are overseas watching kind of this unfold, and your family is still over there. Yeah, and you hear, you know, we'd call my family in Aleppo, I mean, in, in, in Homs, and you'd hear gunfire in the background. You would hear gunfire. And you'd hear artillery strikes. And like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know if that line is going to cut off that next instant. Or, you know, is that person going to be alive the next day when you call them? 
Yeah. My uncle, my aunt's husband is a doctor and he was kidnapped by the government. He was taken in prison by the government because he was aiding the civilian rebels at the time. Oh my and goodness. we didn't know where he was for a couple of months. We didn't know if he was alive, if he was dead, where was he? You knew nothing. Yeah, and thankfully we were able, he was able to like escape and come back. He was able to return. Um, but it's just, those are the fears that we, I had being here. And that's what motivated me to want to go and help to do something. Um, so I went the summer after my junior year and the summer after my senior year. And I spent some time working in uh, primary care clinics, mental health clinics, uh, and then field hospitals inside Syria. So mm -hmm. where you're looking at a, a, a full-on war zone and a hospital that's operating 24-7, trying to operate on the major injuries in northern Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thrown into that. Um, and yeah, it was so very you difficult. Are, you're, at this point, um, how old were you? Still sophomore in 16 college? 16 or 17. Or you, you were yeah. 16 and 17 years old. Sophomore in high yeah. school. Yeah, sophomore in high yeah. school. Um, what, was, um, what was the turning point for you? What, what finally made you like, okay, I, I got to go do something about this? The helplessness that you feel. I mean, you know you can't fix the problem, but you just want to do something to help. You know, you get sick of just sitting there and watching the news and watching the news cycle completely twist everything around. And yeah. In Syria, it's population of 21 million, 23 million. Half that pop over half that population is currently displaced. Like, displaced from their homes. Yeah. And at a point, there was a rate of about 10,000 people leaving Syria every day. So imagine leaving campus for a week and coming back and this whole area is deserted. Yeah. Like, that's the rate that things were going on for months. People were leaving. For, for, for years, people were leaving at that rate. A, a, a country was just completely disintegrating. And I just couldn't sit and watch. I just wanted to do something to help. Even though I was only a high school student, my mom began, um, she dropped, she, she was, we used to work as a pharmacist. She dropped her, t her working job. She booked a flight to Turkey to find an organization to work with. And that's what she's dedicated her time to since the conflict started. So I had a way to go in and help her in the organization. Oh, that's that's amazing, man. What what was um what was going through your head on that plane? So you're sitting on the plane going over. Man, that's such a long time ago. But um, junior year of after my junior year of high school, I think I was nervous. I didn't know expect what to see. I didn't know what to see, what I was gonna see, um, who I was gonna interact with, like. I didn't never seen the situation firsthand, mm -hmm. so I was a little scared. Um, but having my mom with me was kind of was really nice. Like I wasn't going yeah. on my own, yeah. Or you know, someone who I trusted and someone who's taken care of me for my whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, I. Once again, it, it's something that it's really hard for me to even comprehend. The just uh, having to drop everything. And having your family so, like, such in a dangerous place where, like you said, at any moment you never know when the, the phone line's going to cut off or mm -hmm. um, if that strike hits your house yeah. or your neighbor's house. or um, And being able to act on it, that takes a lot of courage. I give you a lot of credit, you and your mom. I mean, it's, it's, our, it's my responsibility. Like, in Islam, I, we believe that, you know, we've been given privileges and blessings in our life. And... We're accountable for those things. You know, if I'm getting an education, I'm accountable to my community to serve my community with education. If God's giving me financial resources, I'm accountable to spend it on other people to serve my community. And the blessings of having a safe roof over our head and being able to eat every day, and all those things are things we take for granted. 
But when we're given them, that means we have more responsibility to our world. It comes with that responsibility. And especially being from Syria, like with so many people leaving, who's going to come and help if it's not Syrians themselves? Mm-hmm. Syrians who are educated, who are safe, who have the financial capacity to leave and come and help. Who, who aren't fleeing with their family of seven and have to just do the bare, everything they can just to survive. If I'm just sitting here in the United States, like eating chips, watching the news, like that's not, I'm not fulfilling that responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's a great message. That's a fantastic message. And I wish a lot more people had that idea. It's, um, especially for someone like me, it is hard to, to act because um, you, get, you do, you kind of get comfortable. And if you're not close enough, um, you do, you get a little complacent and take things for granted, the roof over your head. Mm-hmm. You're always striving within your bubble to get more and you forget to give back. So yeah. I know that's something I'll take for heart, to heart already from this conversation. Mm-hmm. So you're, in, you're at the field hospital now. What, I, what, what's going on? Like, I don't even know what that situation would look like. What, um, what was the, the, was a tent set up? Was it mobile? Was there a lot of staff? Mm-hmm. So this was the largest field hospital in the northern region. So it was actually an actual building and it was okay. fully functional. We had an emergency room. We had an operating room. We had different specialties. Of course, it's not like a hospital you'd see at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. It's a building that was changed into a hospital because time has made it necessary. Okay, I um, gotcha. And, and that's why it's a field hospital. You know, it's made out of necessity from the war. And um, what was it like on a daily basis? It was frantic. It was hectic. You had people coming in every day with traumatic injuries to, to the point where I don't think there was a day that passes where you're not, someone's not dying on the operating table or someone's not dying in the waiting room because there's just not enough resources to help everyone. You know, being, having to choose between saving a mother and her child are decisions that physicians had to make. Having to operate from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. to remove shrapnel from a, a boy's body that's completely covered in shrapnel where I'm watching the operation or I'm helping stitch up the wounds and I can't even recognize the body. But... There, if there's any type of hope, we try to help the person. Um, it wasn't something that I had ever experienced ever in my life, and it really grounded me in that perspective that I have these blessings, and I can never take them for granted again because there, all these people had been stripped away from them. And the thing is, these are all people like us. You know, mm-hmm. they're men, women, and children, who, husbands and wives, and people who had lives and wanted to enjoy time with their family and relax and have fun and go to work and make a living, just like we all do. Mm-hmm. And they have their own dreams and aspirations. And it's all stripped away from them. And not because of anything they did. No. Right? And that's the worst part. There's just innocent lives were dying. And I ha- witnessed it routinely when I was working in the hospital. Every single day. And it's what motivates me most to continue, like those memories that I have. And also, if, if any of this stuff you don't want to talk about, just, just let me know. Of course. Um, what, was, what was the hardest day? Was there, was there a moment where it really just kind of encaptured um, just the devastation that is happening right now? Uh, you know, so I think the hardest moment for me, and I actually spoke about this in the TED Talk I gave here at Ohio State a couple of years ago, it wasn't seeing people die in front of me directly. Um, I was sitting, I was in Syria at the time, and we're overlooking a close-by city. 
and you see in the horizon a helicopter passing over and a barrel bomb drops from the underbelly of the helicopter. And you're standing miles away and you can't do anything. Like, no screaming, no running, nothing that I can do can help the people who are underneath, who are taking a nap and have no warning, or who didn't have a chance to see what was happening, or just were too close in the vicinity to escape. And that was the moment that really broke my heart, because that sense of helplessness um, that I felt when I was in the United States watching the news, but to see it in person and be in Syria, being helping and still feel helpless in that moment, was just extremely overwhelming. Um, and I think that was definitely the hardest part for me because you think that you're going towards this education and you're develop. You're, I'm going into medicine so that I can help people, but the reality is you can't save everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it forced me to develop a very different perspective in life. That like at the end of the day, the outcome I believe is in God's hand, and I can't control that. But what I'm responsible for is what's in my own, what's in my capacity to do things. And am I maximizing? the resources I've been given, am I maximizing the opportunity in front of me to be the best possible leader for my community? And if I can go to sleep that night and say yes, with the satisfaction to grow more, but with the satisfaction of not being complacent and moving forward, then that's all I can ask for, no matter what the end result is. So that's something that that moment was definitely a changing point for me. Yeah, um, just it's kind of it's hard to wrap my head around the fact that you 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 saw you saw in person what's happening Mm -hmm. people possibly being hurt right from your eyes and that hopelessness um but i what i love about your story too is you took it into a very positive direction i feel like there the problems that we face nowadays especially I, i can only speak for myself but sometimes feel so overwhelming so overwhelming and you can do Whatever it takes, go to a field hospital and help everywhere you can. But those bombs are still dropping. What you did, and I think what I'm definitely going to take away from this conversation, I hope everyone listening does too, is you can carve a niche for yourself. And that's exactly what you did coming back. Mm -hmm. So obviously, huge life-changing experience. You come back to OSU and back to your life, but it doesn't seem like you wasted a lot of time. <laughs> we all waste time. We all watch our TV shows. And that's true, but you definitely, you definitely got to work, and that's where this, this story takes um, a, a life of its own. And for all of these big issues, you're, you're doing a great thing with your mentorship program and refugees. So um, give us a little background on your organization and, and what it does. Yeah, so I, like you said, I came back and... I really began to think of what am I capable of doing here. It's very ineffective to travel every summer for a month just to help. I don't have professional skills. I don't have technical skills yet. I'm a student. So what can tap into our capacity as undergrad students with the time that we have and the resources we have at the university? Uh, And so I started, me and two of my uh, colleagues who also went to the university here, uh, started Refuge. And our goal was to help refugee, high school refugee students be more prepared to fit, get into higher education here in the United States. Um, you know, as a refugee, when you first come here, if you're coming at an older age, if you're not, like, extremely young, you have to acclimate to the language, there's a lot of peer pressure around you, there's a lot of social issues, like, everything around you, societally, you don't understand. And having to acclimate that 
and understand the educational system so you can apply to colleges and be competitive applicants oh against God. college and know how to take your passions and make a career out of it. After you've spent years as a refugee, potentially outside your own country and not having any form of education, it's close to impossible. Because um, when these children come young, they acclimate over time and mm-hmm. they're pretty set. But if they're coming in middle school or in high school, it's very difficult. So what we do is we pair college students here at Ohio State with high school refugee students um, someone that they can trust, someone they can develop positive relationships with. And we also have a program that, you know, as a sophomore or junior, helping them understand the educational system better, transforming some of the interests there are into understanding you can actually pursue this interest as a career. Um, and then we invite our students to come to the university at the end of the semester and sit down with professors, go to classes, really immerse themselves within the campus to see, like, this is what I'm working towards. Like, this is why I'm working hard towards my education. Um, and of course, one of the things, financial considerations is a big burden, and we hope to do, we have a small scholarship fund that we've started for our students, but hoping to grow that more so we can make education a, a feasible reality for them as well. Yeah, what, what gave you this idea? What, what, was there a specific story that sparked the whole, whole we did thing? Some research in the refu- we did some research in the refugee community here to see what was missing. And there's a lot of things missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but resettlement agencies who bring refugees in, the federal government, speaks to resettlement agencies, the resettlement agencies find homes for the families, they place the families in jobs, um, and they provide short-term services. And when you, we looked for a gap in those services, and one of those gaps was for high school youth. And it's not that gap was there because they didn't want to address it. There's just not enough financial resources to address all the issues present. And we found a lot of other issues, you know, issues with housing, issues with job placement. But as students, what are we most capable of helping people with? And we have a lot of time, and we understand the university best. And we just went through that process. Mm-hmm. So creating a program where we work with high school youth was what's most effective for us to do. That, it, it's, an, um, it's a great use of the resources that you have. Yeah. Uh, what was, uh, I'm sure you had quite a, students, quite a few students come through already. Yeah. What's your favorite success story? So we ran our first pilot spring semester, uh, and... What's our favorite success story? What was really beautiful to see was one of, my, one of our students was a ninth grader, and she sat in on a large 200-person class here at Ohio State. And you would have think she'd shy, she wouldn't want to be there, she'd be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But no, this girl, within like 20 minutes, was raising her hand to ask questions, to answer questions, and she was just so engaged with the class. Oh, no kidding. And to hear that and to see that, our mentor was with her, and she told us about this thing. And just to hear about that and then talk to her afterward about that experience was so beautiful. Um, because what was she that's saying? What was just she? like how much she loved being in the classroom and that she wanted, to ha- she wanted to have that experience in college. She wanted to work her way to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all the students who came here to the university in this semester, like, they all loved to stay. They all loved coming here. They, you could see the happiness in their face that, like, this is not an experience they get in high school. Um, and their parents don't know anything about the system either. So, like, who's going to come take them on college visits and help them understand how to get here? Yeah. So just seeing the gratefulness and their joy to tell other friends about the program and, and just our, wanting our program to expand. And we've, had, we've been so blessed by the community around us. And, like, I've had so many opportunities to speak about Refuge and Refuge was featured in the Alumni Magazine in mm-hmm. May and the cover story that OSU wrote. And we had... We wanted to look for 15 mentors when we did our interviews in the fall. We had over 80 people apply to be mentors. 
Wow. And that was our first year. Um, we hope to expand to Cincinnati next year, to University of Cincinnati. We have some students who are interested in starting a branch of the program. Um, we apply for 51C3 status, so like we're a nonprofit now, and we want to start different branches in different university locations. So it's just really beautiful to see it come together after a year of hard work and hopefully continuing to work on it moving forward. Yeah, so where, where, where's, where are you at? What's, uh, what's going on in your head? So you had what seems like like this crazy roller coaster ride of ups and downs, your childhood, you're going to Syria you're with your family, you have some great memories, and then this terrible conflict happens, and then you come out of it and you're starting to create this cool program. Like what, like what, what state are you in right now? What's going on through your head through the entire situation? You know, there were times where I was very negative about this. I was very, I was like, why? Why me? Like, why do I have to feel like this? Even though it's very selfish, because I was the one actually suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was difficult to like see people die. Yeah. And absolutely. also had some friends back home pass away in the United States at the same time, from my own community, and feeling very overwhelmed with all that negative emotion. Um, but like you said, being able to channel it positively, and right now it's just a feeling of gratitude. Like, I, things happen for a reason, and the experiences that I've had, like. The wisdom behind it, like God's wisdom behind it, is to create this passion and this vision for what I want to be. Um, and just this last year at Ohio State has been incredible. I've worked very hard for four years here at OSU, and mm-hmm. to see it all pay off, like to go through the med school application process. And as a as a high school student, my dream was to go to school at Stanford or Harvard mm-hmm. or Duke or these wonderful schools for undergrad. And not getting into those schools as a high school student, but then working hard in undergrad and getting into all those schools as a, for medical school. Mm-hmm. And it was just a blessing from God. And I know part of that was the conflict happening. You know, I would trade everything for the conflict not to happen. Right. But it happened, and the reality is I've grown from it as a person in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. And the position I'm in is because of all those experiences I've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a true believer of fire forming forging the steel, mm-hmm. and it once again I'm super glad that in in the midst of one of the greatest human humanitarian crises of our generation, there are some silver linings, and yeah. you're you're definitely one of them. So, um, no, I'm trying. <laughs> so what? So now now we're coming back to kind of the bigger picture. So me and my audience. I can regretfully say I haven't acted the way that I want, would want to towards um, the the Syrian crisis. So what would someone like me or one of our listeners in Columbus or uh, an average American uh, mm-hmm. do? Like gotcha. what, what can we, we do to help? So when, when you say that, I think two things come to mind first is, uh, one, when it comes to this issue specifically, the Syrian conflict and refugee, the refugee crisis, these issues exist in our local communities, and that's where we're most effectively being able to help. Uh, you know, I know Arabic, I'm Syrian, me traveling overseas to help is much easier for me. It's much more convenient. I can actually do effective work because I understand the language. Um, but these refugees are being resettled from around the world into Columbus. You know, Columbus has a huge refugee population. Iraqi, Nepali, Somali, and Syrian refugee communities growing. And all these refugees have needs. So there's local organizations here like Chris, uh, CRIS, um, us together, 
Um, they're the two big resettlement agencies here in Columbus that work with the refugees, and they always need volunteers. You know, welcome teams to welcome refugee families here, be people to drive them from their dentist and doctor's appointments, people to help them read their mail, things that we take for granted, like being able to read, have good English skills that refugees don't have. So there's a capacity for us to help locally. The other thing is, what can we do to help? You know, I think we all have causes that we care about. And I think they're all equally as important. And I always ask people to find what they care about. And the important thing is to dedicate their time to it. And I think that starts with service. When you develop, when you go and serve a community, you begin to appreciate what you have more. And you begin to appreciate the skills and the blessings and the privileges that God has given you. And you then want to utilize those skills to help other people. But unless we get out of our bubble and go serve someone, go help someone, we don't do that. And whether that's a refugee or someone from a community you care about, any marginalized community, that's all that's important. You know, if you go and help within the uh, LGBT community, to me that's as important as working within the Syrian community, the Syrian refugee community. These are both communities that are suffering problems, and we need to be those advocates that we can be. That very beautifully said, man. Um, I think that as is a good as a call to action as possible, and thank you. For coming onto the show and talking about this difficult topic. There's one. Do you mind if I tell? There's one story I want to tell. Absolutely. Um, because you bring up this topic of how can we serve, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes we think we have to travel to another country to help people. You know, there's these Buckeye Serve trips that people go on, travel to Africa, the whole continent of Africa, as if it's right. like one place. Right. <laughs> um, but we can serve people right across the street. You know, on this side, on this side of the street, we have a university. On this side of the street, we have Columbus, and we have a homeless population. You've, you and I both have walked along High Street and seen homeless people on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one day where I was walking on High Street, Saturday night, with my friends. And as we were walking down the street, I saw a homeless guy next to me. And for some reason, something in my heart told me that I should talk to this person. Um, so we went to Subway, and I got him a sandwich, and we were sitting down and speaking. And he could tell that my name wasn't, wasn't American, so he asked me where I was from. And he's like, yeah, I've heard about the Syrian conflict. Like, can you tell me a little more I've heard about in the news? So I started talking to him about my family's experiences and what's happened and the tragedy. And then out of nowhere, like he stares me deeply, intently in the eyes and grabs my shoulder. And he says, thank you. And I was a little taken aback. Like I was like, thank you for what? And he said, thank you for reminding me that there's people suffering more than I am. And I've forgotten to pray for those people. And I've forgotten to be grateful for what I have. And this was a homeless person. And we somehow dehumanize these people. But his character was so beautiful. And that when we, someone tells us about something, or when we read the news, how many of us take a second to think about what we've been given and being grateful for it? So those, so many people that we can help, just across the street. I love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, that really, that really motivates me to do more on my part and really um, start to rehumanize the people around me, mm-hmm. especially... When we're in our own bubbles, sometimes you need to get out. And yeah, I think I you're a great role model in doing just that. I know <laughs> I'm pampering it to you with, with all kinds of stuff, making, making you all nervous or whatever. But uh, it's true. And I think it's something that we can all kind of absorb and make the world a better place, whether it's a massive move to Syria to work in the field hospital or helping the homeless man across yeah. the street. Yeah, one day at a time. We're all in it together. Yeah. We're all in it together. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, 
for everyone listening out there, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, check out the show description for the te- his TED Talk at OSU. Um, you won't regret it. And then I, there's also a link for Refuge to learn more about what this guy is up to. So thank you for coming on the show and Oyster World Radio again. We will check in with you guys next time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Oyster World Radio, a production of Oyster World, LLC. I am your host, Nathan Lieberman. Special thanks to Abdul Al-Rahman for Pulsi. For coming on the air and being so generous with your story. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about Abdul Rahman and his organization, Refuge. To learn more about what we do at Oyster World, go to the Oyster Hub at oysteryourworld.com. Check out what we're up to. If you want to connect, don't be afraid to reach out. Follow and tweet me at Nathan Oyster and find us on Facebook by searching Oyster World. Look out for those meet meets too. Next one is in Columbus, Ohio on June 25th. But rumor has it we're expanding. So keep a lookout on meetup.com in Chicago, New York City, and Austin. We'll see you guys soon. Special thanks to Charlie Milken, who has been such a great supporter of the show, and for supplying this podcast end of the show dance party. Check him out on Spotify or at charliemillikin.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. He will also be performing at some festivals in Columbus, including the Columbus Arts Festival. So check him out on Facebook to stay up to date. Thanks again for tuning into Oyster World Radio. It's all of you that are making the world a better place one day at a time. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, this is Nathan Lieberman. Signing off. I can't take control of my life. If I'm too busy looking at the stars and thinking about our time that's gone by, it's time for a change in my day to day scene. Time to turn around from that clock, face the mirror, and change me.